morning. We're going to begin our journey of looking at the seven deadly sins and their corresponding virtues by looking this morning at the sin of pride and the virtue of humility. This morning we're going to be focusing on a story from the Old Testament book of Esther as a gateway into our exploration. Esther, if you are not familiar with this story, is the Jewish woman who becomes the queen of Persia. And if you were to read the whole story, which I highly recommend you do, you would see how Esther is this amazing biblical paradigm for selfless courage and for using power in just ways. She's the protagonist of the book of Esther, but this morning we are going to look at the antagonist, the villain, a man named Haman. And that's because I think that Haman is one of, if not the, most vivid and sustained case studies in the Bible of everything that the Bible says about pride and humility, and specifically what happens to people who let pride rage unchecked. I'm going to read the scripture, selections from chapters 3, 5, and 6 from the book of Esther. After these things, King Xerxes promoted Haman and advanced him and set his seat above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down. When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down to him, Haman was infuriated. But he thought it beneath him to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So having been told who Mordecai's people were, Haman plotted to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. Later, Haman was recounting to his wife and his friends the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the ministers of the king. And yet he said, all of this does no good, so long as I see the Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, let a gallows, fifty cubits high, be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go with the king to the banquet in good spirits. This advice pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. But that night the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of record, the annals, and they were read to the king. And it was found written how none other than Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold and who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. Then the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's servants who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. Just at this moment, Haman came in, and the king said to him, What shall be done for the man whom the king wishes to honor? Haman said to himself, Whom would the king wish to honor more than me? So Haman said to the king, 
For the man whom the king wishes to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and a horse that the king has ridden, with a royal crown on its head. Then the king said to Haman, Quickly, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to the Jew Mordecai, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. This is the word of the Lord. I want to suggest this morning that there are three things that we learn here. First of all, the character of pride, what it is. Second, the deadliness of pride, what it does. And third, the cure for pride. There is a hope. The character of it, the deadliness of it, and the cure for it. So it says, after these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than all the other nobles. And all the officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But one man wouldn't do it. It's Mordecai, the cousin of Esther, who was the older cousin who had raised Esther when her parents had died. He refused to give respect where respect wasn't due. And so Haman says to his wife and his friends in chapter 5, calling together his wife and his friends, Haman boasted to them about all his vast wealth and all the ways the king had honored him and how he had elevated him above all the other nobles and officials. But all this, he said, gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. And so he's furious. Now what do we learn? about pride. Pride, according to the Bible, is just this. It's concentration on the self. Pride is absorption in the self. I'll give you a definition. It's from C.S. Lewis, and I'm going to talk a lot about C.S. Lewis this morning, A, because he's awesome, and B, because I think he writes about this subject in a way that no one else does. Pride, he says, quote, is this. It's ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration on the self. Ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration on the self. Pride creates what Lewis calls an endless ego calculation. You're always adding things up. You're always looking and thinking, Am I getting the thanks that I deserve? Am I getting appreciated here? How am I being regarded? How am I looking? How does this make me look? And everything is about that. You're always saying, what about me? What about me? What about me? I want to go a step further and say, since I think we can understand pride best as self-absorption, we see that there are two forms of pride. And it's very important to see this. On the one hand, you have the superiority form of pride. And this form is generally recognized as pride by most people. Because people with a superior air are always doing that calculation, are always comparing themselves, thinking, how do I look? How, do, how am I being regarded? Am I being appreciated? And you think you're making out pretty well. That is one form of pride. But there's another form of pride, and it's the inferiority form of pride. The inferiority form is where you're always down on yourself. 
you don't like yourself. You don't like how you look. You constantly feel inadequate in some way. You're always beating yourself up. And as painful as that can be for someone, I want to suggest that it's also a form of pride because you're just as self-absorbed. You're doing all the calculations as well, but you're just not making out as well. We don't often think of this as a form of pride, but it absolutely is according to a biblical definition of pride. Because those two kinds of people have far more in common than a humble person. Because if you can understand pride as self-absorption, then I think we can understand what real humility is. I love how C.S. Lewis defines humility. He says, humility isn't about thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. A humble person, he says, if you've ever actually really met a humble person, you would never come away thinking that they were humble. All you would remember is that they were happy, they were relaxed, they were content, and they were incredibly interested in you. All that ego calculation is gone. They're just not doing it. It's just not there. There's a place in the Screwtape Letters, and it's this amazing book written by C.S. Lewis. And to understand what's going on in the quote that I'm about to read, you have to understand that the Screwtape Letters is about a senior devil writing to a junior devil. And they're writing, the senior devil is writing about how to tempt people. And so in the quote, when it talks about the enemy, You have to understand that they're talking about Jesus. And when it talks about patience, it's talking about human beings who the devils are tasked to try and tempt. So that's what you have to understand. It's the devil talking to another devil. Here's the quote. You must conceal from your patience the real nature of humility. Let him think of it not as self-righteousness, as self-forgetfulness, but as a low opinion of his own talents and character. To thwart the enemy, remember that's Jesus, to thwart the enemy we must consider his aims. Our enemy, you see, wants to turn the man's attention away from self altogether. Remember, both vanity and self-contempt equally keep the mind on the self. Both can therefore be the starting point for some wonderful contempt of other people of cynicism, and of cruelty. Number one, what is pride? Pride is ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration on the self. Number two, so what? Okay, you say, so pride is self-absorption, I get it, but how bad is that? Very bad. Everywhere in the Bible, pride goes before the fall. Pride leads to devastation. Pride leads to destruction. Pride is deadly. You say, well, how is pride so deadly? Haman, it's a pretty extreme case, right? Well, I want us to see that all pride is deadly. Because it turns out that pride is at the root of all evil. Pride is what made the devil the devil. Since St. Augustine, Christian theology has understood that pride is not just one sin among many but is really the root under all of them. Pride is the hellish 
spiritual petri dish that grows all kinds of stuff in our lives and in society. Things like bitterness, things like hatred, resentment, certain forms of addiction, all have pride at the center. And that's just the personal stuff. Then there is the social stuff, all the social, the great social evils, racism and war and imperialism, all come from class pride or racial pride or even national pride, even religious pride. Pride is at the root of all evil. But here's what else makes pride so deadly. As bad as pride is, it's the one sin that hides itself. Pride is the carbon monoxide of sin, killing you without you having any ability to tell that it's happening. It's odorless. Because you see, by definition, the more proud you are, the less proud you think you are. Pride hides itself. I mean, you know when you're committing adultery, right? It's not like you say, oh my gosh, you're not my wife, right? You don't say that. No, you know what you're doing, right? You know when you're embezzling, right? You don't just say, how did that $300,000 end up in my bank account? Oh my goodness, no, you don't say that. You know when you're embezzling. You know when you're lusting. But we don't know when we are being proud. Virtually nobody ever comes to church and says, you know, I've realized that I am proud, that I have this real problem with pride. Nobody ever comes and says that. Let me just go one step further, just to show us how it really is the carbon monoxide of sin. Honestly, be honest. Up until now, haven't you mostly been thinking about a couple other people in the room? Haven't you thought, oh my gosh, that sounds exactly like him. Or that sounds exactly like her. Pride is often hidden from us. We don't see it in ourselves very easily. It can be insidious like that. So we've looked at the character of pride, what it is. We've looked at the deadliness of pride, what it does. Now here is the third point. There is a hope and there is a cure. At the beginning of chapter 6, Haman is coming to see the king, and, he, and here's why. Because as we learn in verse 4, Haman has not just been satisfied to kill Mordecai and his people. He wants to make a public spectacle of Mordecai. And so he has, built a, he has a gallows built in a public place, and he wants to hang him there on a day in which all the Jews are going to be slaughtered. But God has a different idea. That night, the king can't sleep, and he begins to have a book read to him, and he suddenly remembers that long ago, it was none other than Mordecai that had saved his life from assassination. And he realizes that Mordecai had never been rewarded. Haman happens to come in just as the king realizes this and says, Haman, what should we do for a man who the king delights to honor? And Haman, thinking that the king means him, he comes up with this fascinating proposal he says, let the king's robes be put on this man. Now, why does he talk about the robes? I think we can easily miss the significance. In ancient times, robes were, were very significant, especially the kingly robes. 
for the king to put the robes on someone was more than just giving them a high position. For the king to put the robes on somebody, his own robes was saying, not only do I honor this person, but I truly delight in this person. I love this person. So Haman can kind of sympathize with him. Haman hears that and he's thinking, wow, if all the people out there were to see that I'm loved like that by someone as great as this king, then they'll know and then I'll know my worth. Because you see, I think that is what we really all need, what we're really all looking for. We don't just want love in general. We want someone who we think the world of thinking the world of us. Or as one writer put it, we long for the praise of the praiseworthy. The praise of the praiseworthy is above all rewards. But to Haman's absolute shock, the king says, what you've just said, what you've just said, I love it. Do it to Mordecai. And you take the role of the servant leading the horse along. And it's astounding to Haman. It floors, it's the most incredible and astonishing reversal of fortunes. His entire plot is foiled, and he knows that he is doomed. There's been a total reversal, and this is exactly what the Bible says everywhere about pride. This goes across the board, that if you exalt yourself, you will be humbled. But if you humble yourself, you will be exalted. You have to lose your life to find it. Doesn't that sound strange? You have to lose your life to find it, to save it. Look for yourself. Look just for yourself. And in the long run, what you will find, you will find only loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ. Look for Christ and you will find Him. And with Him, everything else thrown in. Everything that you have been looking for. You see, Haman did not ask for the wrong thing. What Haman was asking for was something that we all want. He didn't just ask for the wrong thing. He asked the wrong There's a better king. There's a king of ultimate glory who, believe it or not, came to earth and stripped himself of his glory. Why? Because he, Jesus Christ, was reversing places with us. God made him sin that knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's where we learn what humility is. Jesus Christ exchanges places with us. He takes what we deserve so that we can take what He deserves. Jesus says, you must realize that the praise of the ultimate praiseworthy, the glory and the honor and the robes of the ultimate King are yours. And when you know, when you really know that He loves you like that. When you really know all that He went through for you, that's the one-two punch that the ego needs to finally make itself forgetful and at rest. To fill it up 
make it overflowing so that it's not so needy anymore. You see, it's not enough just to say, I believe in God. That doesn't make us humble. It's deeper. We have to see, we have to understand, we have to have the knowledge of God coming all the way down, of God reversing places with us at infinite cost to Himself. Because on the one hand, we know that Jesus died for us to humble us. But on the other hand, to know that He was glad to die for us is what affirms us infinitely. I think that if we can truly hear this, then we have the cure for pride. That if we can take this deep down into ourselves, if we can understand what Jesus did for us, if we can truly appreciate and know how He thinks about us and what He feels for us, then we will have that inner assurance. We will have that joy that will enable us to live our lives with the blessed self-forgetfulness that we all need. Let us pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks this day for your word. For all the stories in Scripture where there are people, people of great courage, people of great pride, where we can find ourselves in each person in the story. We thank you that through you we can know what true humility is. That it really is about thinking about ourselves less. But Lord, we know that that's not something that we can just attain on our own. It's not just a switch that we can flip. But it comes, O Lord, from a deep experience of knowing you, of knowing who you are, of what you have done of knowing your character and being so filled by your love, being so filled by the affirmation that you have for each and every one of us that we know our identity so that we can get over ourselves and that we can be truly humble. We thank you, O Lord, that we are not just lost in our sin, that we are not without hope. But we thank you that your Son, Jesus Christ, has provided a way that we can know your heart and your character and that we can be brought into closer relationship with you. We give you thanks, O Lord. Thank you for your love for us. In your name we pray. Amen.